I'd like to start off with a rather silly pun as the dust settles on the Formula One season. We're chatting to Formula One Finishiario and uh, a mate of mine from many, many years ago, whom I haven't spoken to forever, Henry Kruvut. Welcome to From the Boardroom to the Locker Room. It's been a long time. It has been a long time. Great to talk to you again, Louis. I mean, when last we spoke, uh, Etten Sinner was still racing motorcars and <laughs> Nigel Mansell was my hero. Yeah. Yeah. Well, absolutely, absolutely. It ages us a little bit, doesn't it? It does indeed. But nothing's <laughs> changed. There's still lunatics on four wheels driving at incredible speeds around different racetracks now with a lot that's changed over the years. Do you think it's better now than it was then? I do think so, Louis. And I think there's one thing that, that really made the difference, and that is the, the new ownership of Formula One. As you, as you know, obviously, Bernie Eccleston was the guy who was in charge and owned the commercial rights to Formula One for many, many years, for something like, uh, I think, 30 years or even longer than that. Um, and then in 2017, the American media company, Liberty, uh, Liberty Media, bought the rights from, from, uh, from Eccleston. And since then, they have really re- revamped the championship, brought it, uh, you, gave it a lot of uh, hype, uh, certainly hyped it up uh, much more and, and, and uh, made sure that the uh, coverage of the sport is much wider, that the, the buy-in from a new audience, a younger audience, uh, is there. And I think uh, Formula One is so much the better for all of that. A lot of skepticism when they took over, though, wasn't there? Well, there was a lot of skepticism, and I think there still probably is a little bit of that left over, that they would Americanize the sport. You know, Formula One is a very, very strong European uh, basis and history and and traditions. Uh, Not quite as loud, I would say, as the Americans do, but they did add some loudness to the sport, I think, uh, to its its advantage. And I think most most of the skepticism of the early times has uh, disappeared now. I think one of the things, uh, and sure you'll agree with me, outside of losing a couple of races. But COVID worked in the benefit of Formula One in terms of the the drivers getting involved in the E side of racing and, you know, this uh, PlayStation and Xbox and, <laughs> and sitting around and doing all of that. And I think that certainly, I mean, my kids, my daughter in particular, I mean, she's only 22 years old, but she all of a sudden like, is in love with Lando Norris. I mean, like, what on earth are you talking about, Dad? I want to watch the Grand Prix, you know? It's fantastic what that did for the sport. Albeit we lost a couple of races, but it seemed to, because of the fact that they were able to do it electronically, for lack of a better word, it hyped it up to the fact that when they got back on the track, everybody was now interested. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think apart from the, the effect of COVID and the fact that a lot of people, including members of the sport and did not really have anywhere else to go but to stay inside and a lot of uh, a large portion of the audience i would imagine probably had the same problem and, and so therefore they could connect much easier than would normally have been the case when these drivers like charlotte clark and and, and lando norris and the other youngsters all got into as you say esports and started competing against each other i think the other one i think uh, the other factor that is generally uh, credited for the rise in interest among young people is the netflix series drive to survive which really opened up the sport to non-traditional audiences and and, and brought a drama to the sport and, and, and elevated the, the drivers to, to a much higher level as heroes and as, uh, you know, uh, fighters um, and, 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 and real personalities than before. Uh, obviously, in the time when, when Bernie Eccleston was in charge, you know, social media was a no-go. 
he was very strict. He and his organization were very strict about the broadcast rights and, and, and who may see the video footage of races and, and elements of, of the sport, where after the Liberty Takeover, it, they opened up the sport to social media, to the internet, and that has had a huge effect on the growth of the sport, the growth of his audience worldwide. Yeah, I mean, you know, we, we, we go back a long, long time. I mean, to get an interview with Michael Schumacher or Nigel Mansell or an Alain Prost or an Eden Senna <laughs> yes. was almost impossible. But then we would watch American motor racing, whether it was Indianapolis 500 or the Indy Series or even uh, those of us that watched a bit of NASCAR. The Americans just seemed to have it right. They would do the interview. They would understand what it was like in terms of their sponsors. They would change their peak caps five times during an interview. They were always <laughs> ready for conversations. And you actually got to know the drivers better than in Formula One. And then when the Americans took over, the uh, the moustached uh, Chad, uh, the whole, everything just changed, didn't it? For the better, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, you know, they realized, uh, the Americans have long realized the value of television exposure and of, of opening up the sport, not only Formula One or not only motorsport, but, you know, all American sports are very, very open to the media, especially, and, and I think to the fans as well, uh, much more so than what Formula One used to be. And, and as I said, that was all because of the fact that Bernie Eccleston, he was an authoritarian <laughs> dictator yeah. basically that uh, whose word was was law and and he was you know he's basically just turned i think 93 or something this year so you know he's from the old god and tv was not part of the mix for them apart from broadcasting the sports but access i mean access to the drivers in the sport wasn't really a big factor and social media as i said certainly was not a factor at all he wanted to keep it off social media off the internet because he said that the the primary audience for for motorsport or for Formula One rather were people who could afford Rolex watches, you know, yeah. people who are sixty years and older and are rich, and that clearly was was the way that he saw the the, uh, the ideal audience of the sport, which was completely wrong and male dominated as well. And <laughs> male dominated, yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's talk about twenty twenty two season, unlike twenty twenty one, which ended in uh, controversy and, and great excitement for all of us. But looking back at the year, um, the dominance of Red Bull and Max Verstappen, just superior to everybody else. In the execution, yeah. I think from the beginning of the season, it wasn't quite clear who would, uh, which, team would, uh, which team would get it completely right and which team didn't get, get it quite right. It, uh, in fact, I'm going to correct myself there. I think, I think it was quite clear from the start that the, the dominant team of the last few years, of the last seven or eight years, Mercedes, uh, got the new dispensation completely wrong. When I say the new dispensation, I mean the introduction of the, of the uh, ground effect aerodynamics for the season. The cars look completely different to what they looked like last year and the few years before that because the uh, the aerodynamic regulations were, were completely changed. Uh, so therefore, the emphasis on the generation of downforce, how the cars generate downforce, was taken away from the top of the car to the underneath of the car. In other words, that it doesn't necessarily get get pushed down on the track, but gets sucked in onto the track. So, so that was a major, major difference. And 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 some teams got it right, uh, notably Red Bull, notably Ferrari. Some teams got it wrong, notably Mercedes. So that was a big, 
a big eye-opener at the beginning of the season. And, uh, you know, when we looked at the first two or three races, we all thought, ah, Ferrari is back. Ferrari is really going to be competitive this year. And, and they may well be in a, in a championship battle with Red Bull. That was fairly clear from the start. But as the season progressed, Red Bull continued to, to perform well. They did not necessarily have the fastest car, but they had, uh, they had solved their reliability problems from the early parts of the season. And they had their operational ability at the track over the weekend, the way in which they conducted their race weekend. They just got it right most of the time, whereas Ferrari started to suffer from reliability problems. And we found out towards the end of the season why that was. I'll get back to that. And also, Ferrari had a number of operational difficulties in getting race strategies wrong and getting wrong, you know, making wrong calls on when to go in for tire changes, what kind of tires to use for the conditions, that sort of thing. So, so Ferrari's initial challenge uh, fell back towards the end of the season and where Mercedes was uh, right, not really competitive at the beginning of the season, they slowly but surely clawed their way back. The, most of their problems were caused by uh, a phenomenon called porpoising. I don't know how technically you want to get about that, but uh, they they seemed to gradually solve that. And towards the end of the season, they, they, they came good, became very competitive, clearly challenged Ferrari for a possible second place in the Constructors' Championship, even won a race, the previous, uh, the, the, the penultimate race in Brazil. So, yeah, a fluctuating uh, picture at the at the front of the field where midfield was very very competitive between uh, you know the rest uh, of the teams the likes of Alpine McLaren Alfa Romeo Aston Martin they were all basically in a in a fight for the midfield for the midfield results right throughout the season Hindsight's 2020. Do you think perhaps Mercedes spent too much time developing the 2021 car and thought, well, we're so dominant that we'll just cruise into 2022? It's highly unlikely that they would make a mistake like that, Louis. I think the, uh, another factor which we could possibly talk about that, that also had, had an effect on how teams develop their cars during the course of the 2022 season was the introduction of the cost cap or budget cap. Uh, where, whereby, whereby teams were limited to the number, to the amount of money that they were allowed to spend. I think you know uh, Mercedes would not have made such a basic error, even though they were com- uh, involved in a in a very tight championship fight last year, as you've mentioned. Um, but I think the fact is that that Mercedes and they've admitted to this that the design of their 2022 car, the W13, was based on on what they say was basically the wrong philosophy, design philosophy, where they tried to uh, design the car s- such that it runs extremely low to the to the track surface, and that was one of the reasons why they suffered from that phenomenon that I mentioned, porpoising, whereby you know the the car gets pressed down on the track as it speeds up, and then um, uh, it gets so low down on the track that it loses all that downforce then it gets gets raised again momentarily and then the downforce starts working again then it gets pushed down again and that happens a number of times a second and that's why they call it porpoising such as the way that porpoises or dolphins you know swim in the sea they go over the surface and then into the water and then up over the surface again that sort of thing and that was an aerodynamic problem that was caused by the basic design philosophy of of the mercedes car a decision that they took well and in advance before the end of last season that was the main reason why they suffered so much with the car they couldn't run it as low as they would like it to run in other words the aerodynamics did not work the way they they wanted it to work and therefore the car was slow now you mentioned ferrari and you said that you would elaborate on what you thought ferrari's problems were what surprised me the most about ferrari this season besides the reliability and that can happen when you're talking about these uh, running cars at the absolute limit of braking to get them as fast as possible was 
their tactics this year just seem to be so strange. You didn't <laughs> need to be a Formula One expert to realize watching them make these real basic errors. Yeah, that is something that I cannot explain. I mean, I, I, I certainly don't claim to be that close to, to any body in Formula One, much less for a Ferrari, to be able to explain why on the day the hundreds of people, literally hundreds of people who are involved in analyzing the data that gets sent back to the to the factory or to their base in Italy. They've got an operational room, uh, you know, sort of a, a, a war room almost. Most of the teams do. In fact, all, all the teams do have a bit of a war room at the at the factory where they where they analyze all the data that, that gets sent back to them. And they've got a specific team of strategists that then run all kinds of simulations as the race progresses and then comes up with an ideal strategy. In other words, should we come in now? Is our tire degradation such that we can stay out a bit longer? Are we going to be able to benefit if we come in earlier or benefit later on if we come in later? That sort of thing. And they simply seem to get it wrong, despite all of those resources. I, I cannot explain that. One factor uh, that did become clear towards the end of the season, and that was admitted by Mattia Benotto, who's the team principal at Ferrari, the last two races, I think, he admitted that, that they had to turn down the power of the, of the power unit, the engine, uh, in, in order to, to make sure that they, that, they kept, that they kept it reliable, which also explains a little bit about uh, Ferrari's uh, lack of performance towards the end of the season. Would you say that the cost cap hurt Ferrari the most? You know, we keep saying years gone by, Ferrari have an open checkbook, which I guess they've always had. And maybe that in itself was a problem for them, bearing in mind the amount of money that they were allowed to spend. I think that's probably about the same for, for most, or at least the top three teams, Ferrari, Red Bull and Mercedes, who were used to having unlimited budgets for development. But a couple of years ago, it was, it was decided, and clearly that was a very good decision, that the teams should be limited as to the amount of money that they would be allowed to spend on development. We're not talking about other, you know, uh, other costs, but we're talking about competitive development of their cars throughout the season, because otherwise you just end up with an arms race in terms of who's got the biggest budget. We've seen that in Formula One over the years. Those with the most money generally came out on top, and you don't want that because that means that the competitiveness of the sport gets less. Um, fewer and fewer teams are competitive, and just one or two teams dominate at the front. We don't, you don't really want that. So the cost cap was brought in to limit that and also to make the teams viable viable as businesses. In other words, to make the teams such that people would like to buy them should somebody decide that they don't want to compete in Formula 1 anymore. Previously, it was kind of impossible to come into Formula 1 and not lose a fortune while you're trying to compete and then you just leave because you could not, you're not, you could not compete against the, the bigger teams with more money. So those were the two reasons. And I think uh, what we found was that the, the three top teams had to, they had to cut down on their workforces. In other words, to cut down on their salary bills, which is part of, of, the, of the cost cap. They had to redeploy people in various other roles and come up with ways to be more effective with fewer people. And also they had to plan much more meticulously as to the upgrades that they would bring uh, throughout the season. They would Previously, uh, you know, a team could, could go down some kind of development path and produce as many aerodynamic parts as they want to and test them at the track. If it don't work, they just throw it away. If it, if it doesn't work in the, in the wind tunnel, they just throw it away and start something new. Now they can't do that because that costs money. So they had to choose much more carefully 
about you know, what development path you want to go through and how are they going to time these upgrades throughout the season. And Ferrari did admit towards the end of the season that they got that a little bit wrong, that they could not bring as many upgrades to the track at the correct times throughout the season as they would have wanted to. So that's probably also one of the reasons um, that Ferrari has had a bit of an unsatisfactory season. But one has to comp- uh, also remember, just as a bit of a perspective, the, the objective for the 2022 season clearly stated before the season started was to be competitive, not necessarily to challenge for the championship, but to be competitive, which is something that they were not in the, in the last two or three years. They were not even you know close to, to being competitive to, at the front. And this year, at least, they won a few races and they had uh, quite a number of pole positions. And they were in both championships uh, and finished in second place uh, in both the, uh, comp- uh, the, the constructors and the drivers' championship. So in terms of success, they certainly improved on the last few years and hopefully for them and their supporters they are now on an up on an upward path we would all i think like to see next season i think that the cost cap seems to have worked for teams four to ten better than it's worked for teams one two and three because those top three teams even though the budgets are similar if not identical they seem to still be a second which doesn't sound like a lot but over 65 laps it's a minute and a half almost ahead of everybody else but the rest of the field the racing has been fantastic yeah absolutely and i think you know the top three teams will will still remain the top three teams for the next year or two because you have the experience they've got the people in the correct positions in the senior positions that have the experience of being dominant and being uh, race winners over the last few seasons. So, you know, that experience counts for quite a lot, where obviously if you're uh, one of the smaller teams, maybe you needed to to appoint people that maybe come from, that would come from, I don't know, the, uh, the World Endurance Championship or the German touring cars or whatever. They still need some time to learn all the finer points of being successful in Formula One. And that takes some time. But as, you know, as the years go by, I'm pretty sure in the next two or three years, we're going to see how the the current midfield teams and even the current backmarkers like Williams would come will come back and be competitive and we would see a much, much more competitive will spread over many more teams than we've seen over the last uh, few decades, in fact, to be honest. Let's talk about drivers now. We've spoken about cars, we've spoken about teams. Your take on Max Verstappen? I know he won last year in controversial circumstances. This year, totally dominant. How much of it is him as a driver and how much is it the car? That's always the perennial question in Formula 1, in motorsport, in fact, isn't it? The car makes a difference. Obviously, you cannot win if you don't have a good car. And in most cases, you know, the the legends of the sport from right from the beginning were always in the best car. So it's as simple as that. The car has got to be good. In fact, the car has got to be among the best for you to be able to win. But you still have to make it work as the driver. And Verstappen has been able to do that so convincingly. Well, since ever he set his foot, I think, in a go-kart yeah. at the age of four. Clearly been a superstar in the making ever since, you know, his father, Jos, got him into a go-kart, as I said, at the age of four. And, and, and that's now starting to show. As I said, you know, the driver's got to make the car work. And he's been able to do that to, to the nth degree. He's been able to mold the team around him, which is very important, the, the greats. You know, like the Schumachers of the world, like the Hamiltons of the world, they've all been able to mold the team around them. And, and it's a natural thing, you know, the team will naturally uh, unite behind the guy who is bringing them the success. So that's to be expected. And he's he's completely dominated. Uh, we're still talking about Verstappen. He's still completely dominated his teammates over the f- 
course of his Formula One career, so much so that he could be in a position, as we all know, uh, two races ago, when when he could tell the team, basically, go and stuff yourselves. I'm not going to follow yeah. team orders. I think he's lost a lot of fans when he did that. you agree? I think so, too. And I think it was the wrong thing to do. I don't know exactly what the insides are. And obviously, I'm not, you know... Yeah privy to, to what's going on behind the scenes. There are, there's all kinds of speculation about, you know, Perez having blocked him on purpose or, or stopped him from, from a proper qualifying run in Monaco this year. That could well be a factor. But the thing is, you don't go on the radio, which you very well know will be broadcast, and, and basically say, no, I'm not going to uh, give my teammate the sixth position. I've already won the championship. I've already won my second championship. In fact, the team has already won the Constructors' Championship. All we want to do is get my teammate to finish second in the Drivers' Championship. Uh, Red Bull has never had a one-two in the Drivers' Championship. That's what we want to do. But I am not going to give my teammate that sixth position uh, for him to score the necessary points to take that advantage to the final race just because of something that he did not agree with earlier in the season. That's certainly, uh, you know, self-defeating. And I'm, I'm pretty sure that a lot of people saw that as selfish. And I, I do think that was a bit selfish. Not something that you would expect in a situation like that. If, you know, the, the championship situation was, was different and uh, one could possibly understand that because racing drivers are essentially selfish people. But you're, they, they also know that they have got to be team players. And, and, and why not assist your team? You don't know what's going to happen in the final race. So give them the advantage yes. now especially after what happened last year in the the last race of the season. I mean, ultimately, if it wasn't for his teammate holding Lewis Hamilton up the way he did in a car that was nowhere near as good as Hamilton's, he would not have won the Drivers' Championship. And And, I think that, for me, is really what's annoyed me about the the decision that he made. And and, again, like you said, what can can Red Bull do? They can't suspend him. I mean, he's (laughs) the man. No, they can't. No, you know, just, just to your point, it wasn't the only occasion last year when, when Perez yeah. did. There were a number of occasions, both last year and this year, where, where Perez, uh, uh, I, I seem to remember in Spain this year, Perez was leading. That was well before, you know, the championship situation was sorted out, where Perez uh, stepped aside for, for Verstappen because they want different uh, strategies. And, and that's sort of an accepted way drivers don't really like it, but they know if your teammate is behind you, but he's on faster tires or fresher tires, you know, don't hold him up. Just let him through. That's an accepted, uh, drivers accept that. So that was another occasion where Perez did not have a problem letting him through and probably uh, one of the reasons, one of the uh, the occasions where he could have scored more points. As you said, Verstappen Verstappen cannot be uh, sanctioned by the team. He's certainly not. So let's just uh, speculate, because I'm sure that you don't know, and if you do know the story, uh, great, but it's just broken in the the last few minutes that uh, there's the possibility that China will lose their spot on the calendar next year because of the country's COVID policies. And the reason I bring that up is because the ultimate question that I've left for last, Kyalami or round the streets of the waterfront in Cape Town, a South African Grand Prix. Come on, yes. Mr. Liberty. <laughs> it's about time. How can you be a world championship without racing on the African continent? <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, and, and we all remember the last, uh, you know, uh, in the last few months when, when there was such an, a media storm, storm virtually about the possibility that Kyle Army could be included in next year's calendar. Well, first of all, the China story, you know, that's that's been around and, and uh, China is most probably not going to happen next year because yeah. of, of that particular reason. 
But uh, yeah, look, I mean, I would be amongst the first to say, please bring us a Grand Prix to back to South Africa. I still remember vividly the, the last two that were held at Kailami in 1992 and 93 when I was involved in the broadcast of that. So I'd certainly love to see it. But I think the reality is, and, and, and you know, there's a lot of people that, that, that spread stories that should know better. The reality is that the business model of Formula One under Liberty, and in fact, even ever since Bernie Eccleston as well, the business model is basically you want a race, you pay us. So it's as simple as that. And the amount of money that we're talking about here, the amounts are huge. Uh, You know, uh, countries pay something like uh, 45 to 60 million dollars, US dollars per race. And they've got to be on a on a, a contract that's that's probably minimum three years. In most cases, probably a five year, or in some cases even a ten year contract. So you're talking about, you know, that sort of money. You can you can do the sums yourself. Multiply that by twenty if you want to get the equal the equal uh, term yeah. the equal amount in rand terms. And then you've got to say which if there is no possibility of a private uh, promoter actually making any money out of this, forking out that amount and then not getting that amount back because the the revenue from a Formula One race all goes to Liberty, to the owners, except for the gate. Only the gate goes to the promoter. In other words, the the, the tickets, the people that, that buy tickets, the ticket sales go go as as a as a source of revenue goes to the promoter. And there's absolutely no way that you can make up, work this out, nine, what is it, 900 million rand per race? Yeah. Uh, just by well, ticket it was, sales. It was so, 13,000 rand a ticket, I think they worked it out. Yeah, you know, they, yeah they, they, because the promoter cannot generate any revenue from TV rights, from circuit, circuit sponsorship rights, from uh, hospitality rights. Uh, all of those sources of revenue go to Liberty. So if you say that, the private promoter is certainly not going to be able to make a business case out of this, then you've got to turn to your government or to the state, whether it's the provincial or the local or the national uh, government, and say, listen, uh, the event is going to generate a huge amount for the local economy and the national economy. Can you underwrite this for us, please? And I do think that you know you can probably, in many cases, make out a, a, a good business case like that. In fact, in Austin, in Texas, that's that's their business model, where the additional revenue generated by the event actually makes up for for the support from the state. But in South Africa's case, I think we are all aware of our current the current state of affairs in our country, unfortunately. And I cannot see any way in which the national, provincial or local government will be able politically to sell, you know, sponsoring or, or, or underwriting uh, an event that is essentially not one that has broad appeal, such as football, a World Cup or something like that, and be able to, to justify that politically. It's simply not going to happen. As much as I, and I'm sure you would love to see a race in South Africa, I know the smell of gasoline and <laughs> a hot dog in a boulevard roll. But you know what? The television coverage these days is fantastic. I mean, it would take yeah. a lot to get me off my couch to go to Kyle Army again, perfectly honest. Rick, it's an absolute pleasure chatting to you again. The time has gone by so quickly, but I'm sure we'll catch up with you again. Finally, I presume you're expecting as good a season in 2023 with the extended calendar and so many races. I know there's now it could be a four-week gap between two races with China being cancelled, but who knows, they might still slot another Grand Prix in there. The same again, or can we expect to see some some other fireworks? Yeah, I, I do I do expect a much closer battle next year, Louis, and, and I do expect Ferrari to do better throughout the season, having learned some lessons this year. I do expect Mercedes to be much more competitive right from the beginning. I do expect Red Bull once again to be competitive. 
So I do expect battle amongst at least six drivers and at least three teams at the front. And and who knows what's going to happen behind them if some of someone else can can bridge the gap between the midfield and and the front end. But I'm certainly expecting a much more competitive season next year. I cannot wait for it to start. And may I say thank you very much. It's been a privilege to talk to you after so many years, and we should certainly do it again. We most definitely will. There's a long, it seems like a long wait, but before we know it, the season will be upon us. Um, I mean, the guys were out already testing yesterday and today, so who knows? We will chat again. Henrik Verwitz, your expertise and your commentary uh, on our podcast has been well appreciated, and we'll chat again soon. Thank you for joining us on From the Boardroom to the Locker Room. Join us again tomorrow evening for another edition from 6 until half past 6 South African time. Talk to you again soon.